생각은 났어? 그 there certainly could be a lot of similarity. That's why samsara is called samsara because it just keeps on going around and around and around. We never get a repeat. We never have an earlier phase of samsara all over again, but it can be very similar. And a major reason that happens from within the context of a lifetime, let alone from lifetime to lifetime, is amnesia. Amnesia. And that is we make errors, we fall into mistakes. and then we recognize oh we either do or do not recognize that was a mistake and then we carry on and then we forget and then make it all over again and then forget and make it all over again and forget and so the core theme of shamatha is the development of sati of mindfulness which means memory so perhaps that can help us when we make mistakes actually learn from it and so that we're not repeating the same cycle all of this is actually leading into a very brief just kind of reference back to a re- refresher course in the cultivation of loving kindness it's very easy for us to be trapped by our own pasts people do it all the time happens a lot in some interpretations of freudian psychiatry one could get the impression that that's actually the way it is we are trapped because you know our childhood was what it was and so forth some interpretations but in the cultivation of loving kindness the whole idea is that we're just not repeating or simply rhyming with the limitations the problems the defects of the past we're actually envisioning something new something fresh and this is what dharma just and i'm speaking not buddhism versus christianity or some other tradition but this is what dharma brings to life is actually a trajectory an evolution a transformation a path of freedom as opposed to samsara rhyming forever it is going around and around one repeat performance after another so as we imagine gradually gradually imagine venturing out of this mind center out to the mind periphery uh to envision how can we flourish how can we flourish going back to situations that are not what they were before but may rhyme with what they were before situations similar to you'll see you'll see people that you've met before situations the likes of which you've seen before how can we envision whether we're continuing continuing in retreat which some of us will do going out into more actively engaged way of life which we've all been in how can we envision going back to a place we've never been before or going back where we've been before but for the first time again always T.S. Eliot comes to mind but envisioning it in a fresh way envisioning your shamatha practice in a fresh way we all know that we can fall into the same ruts the same problems in the past but to envision without putting a time limit this is where all the anxiety the hope and fear comes or it may it happen in 6 months 3 months 1 year 10 years or what have you but just saying here's the direction how would i love to see my shamatha practice just taking one little tiny wedge of the pie how would i love to see my shamatha practice develop evolve unfold come into blossom How would you love to, to see that happen and to envision it 
the four immeasurables. How would you love to see these, these blossom, ripen in your own heart, in your lives, to envision that? What type of well-being? What type of relationship with other people? What would you love to offer to others that you've never been able to offer in the past? So I think of my old friend Stephen LeBerge, with whom I've done a half dozen 10-day ten, ten retreats, co-leading them with him on lucid dreaming and dream yoga. And he was very strong on this point, and very rightly so, because he's taught thousands and thousands of people lucid dreaming. He's really a world expert. And I'm sure hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands and thousands, have told him when they've met him, come to the workshop, I can never remember my dreams. I, I never have lucid dreams. I, when I'm lucid, I, I, I can never sustain lucid lucidity. And each of those statements, you know what it's doing? It's just hammering in your future, that the future will be like the past, because you said, I can never. You know, I can never fly. I can never fly. Well, that's because you haven't tried Dumo successfully. <laughs> think about Dumo, think about, you know. And so by, but by saying, I never can, I never can, we are not only making a statement about the past, but we are making a prophecy about the future. Because I never can means that, never, I never can. I always, I always, blah, whatever. Well, always is past, present, future, always eternity. And so we've just locked ourselves in. It's a self-fulfilling self prophecy. So even though he's not Buddhist, he's not really religious, very good man, uh, but religion is not the way he's teaching. Nevertheless, with a lot of psychological savvy, he says, you know, I just suggest, speaking psychologically, because his PhD is in psychology, he said, I suggest you stop talking that way. Rather, just rephrase it. Until now, I've never been able to remember my dreams. Until now, whenever I become lucid, I very quickly wake up. But, but, in the future, this is what I would like to do. Now, that's not unrealistic. That's not nothing airy-fairy or new age about that. But it's leaving the future as a field of opportunity rather than demanding that the future will simply repeat the past. So even the way we talk to ourselves about ourselves let alone what we say to other people. There's just no reason to build cages for ourselves and then jump inside of them. And there are verbal cages, there are conceptual cages, there are cages of, of self-concepts. I'm just not a very loving person, I'm just more of a private, aloof, but, you know, okay, if that's who you want to be, you've just defined yourself, you know. Or I'm very timid, or I'm very frail, or whatever, if that's the way you want to define yourself. But bear in mind, who said that? You said it. Nobody else put you in that cage, right? You put yourself in that cage. Now, do you want to reify it? Or would you like to have your future be a realm of possibility that is fresh and unprecedented, in which case you might envision the type of future you would love to live? That's what loving kindness is all about. So on this point, I'll end, but I'll come back to one of my favorite statements from William James, who is such a good scientist, appreciated, practiced science so well, started the first neuroscience lab, lab, laboratory in the United States. And he was very savvy about, you know, where belief can really impede scientific pro progress. If we believe something, we're absolutely sure that the sun goes around the earth. And, you know, it's going to be really hard. And if we absolutely, here's a big one, 19th century, you absolutely believe that there must be a mechanical explanation for everything that takes place in nature. You absolutely believe that. I mean, Absolutely, right? And that includes light. Well, then there's absolutely got to be a luminiferous ether that, that permeates all of space, and when light travels through it, it ripples. Just like water ripples when a wave moves through water, 
there must be a luminiferous ether that ripples when light, and that accounts for then the wave patterns, which clearly do exist when, when light, you know, when multiple waves of light intersect with each other, we get classic wave interference patterns like we do with water and other media. So, but since there's a mechanical explanation for everything, there must be a luminous, luminiferous ether, an ether that is, is the medium for the transmission of light. 1887, two Michelson and Morley discovered with very compelling evidence there isn't any. There is no medium out there. But wait a minute, it has to be because light, when multiple light waves intersect, they set up interference. There has to be. Well, no, there doesn't because the wave patterns are there, but there's no luminous ether. We found some very, very clear, compelling evidence, and nobody's ever refuted it. That's more than, what, 130 years ago, 120 years ago. And so, with the abandonment of that, it was possible for Einstein to come up with special relativity. If you're still holding on to absolute luminiferous, luminiferous ether, you're stuck with absolute space-time. So, to envision, to envision what has not been in the past, to let go of assumptions that have never been corroborated, can be enormously liberating. So, this was William James' point, and that is when you're bringing in beliefs that are uncorroborated into scientific theory, that can be a major impediment. So don't do it. Recognize what you don't know as what you don't know and keep an open mind. For example, what are the origins of consciousness? I just read a statement by... This is turning into a bit longer, longer final point, but you, you, you've gotten used to that by now. Stephen Hawking I have, a, I have a great deal of admiration for. I mean, really, such a brilliant thinker, but then there's nothing original in my saying that. Everybody knows that. But right now online, there's 10 questions to Stephen Hawking, and somebody asked him, um, you know, what do you think, what happens to consciousness at death? And he said, well, um, the brain is basically, the brain is essentially a computer, and the, and the consciousness is essentially the, its program. So when you turn off the computer, then the consciousness just goes away. I thought, I just wondered, how long did you think about that? I mean, really, your physics is so good. But that, that's your best shot? That's your best shot? Neuroscientists, psychologists, do not know the nature of consciousness, and they're quite open about that, the more, you know, the more honest ones. They don't know what causes it. And you're just saying the brain is like a computer and therefore consciousness is a program, and you think you've solved it? And you're going to base your life on that ridiculous little parallel? This is lame. This is what I expect from a junior high school kid who's not very bright. So that's not good science. He's a brilliant scientist. That's not good science. That's, that's rubbish. That's just taking something you don't understand and then saying it's like something you totally understand and saying, therefore, we understand it. Oy, pathetic. So as long as we believe things like that, that just impedes any rigorous study into the nature of consciousness. Because we say, well, I don't need to study consciousness. I just study the program on my computer. But what he doesn't, I mean, I really was flabbergasted. I was disappointed. I should write him a letter. <laughs> dear, dear Stephen, I'm very disappointed in you. You know? Because the program of a computer is something that is completely transparent in terms of the laws of physics. There's nothing mysterious about it program, how it interfaces with the, with the hardware, the software hardware, is completely transparent. There's nothing mysterious. Whereas the nature of consciousness is completely mysterious. They can't measure it. They can't define it. 
They don't know what causes it. They don't know how it interfaces. They don't know how the, the euphemism of the placebo effect includes it. They know almost nothing about consciousness. But we know everything there is to know about pl programs of computers. We created them. We know everything that anybody needs to know about, and it's completely in accordance with the laws of physics. Consciousness, nobody understands. So this is bad science. I mean, it's pseudoscience. Not, it's not even bad science. It's pseudoscience. And it's where a belief is obstructing genuine scientific curiosity and open-minded investigation. This is what William James warned against. And the man who wrote, Daniel Burston, who wrote The Discoverers, made this quote, and I've cited him many times. He said, the major impediment to scientific discovery over the history of humanity is not ignorance, but the illusion of knowledge. Oh, we already know consciousness. It's like a program on a computer. Next. Well, yep, and the sun goes around the earth. It's perfectly obvious. Watch it will rise tomorrow morning. <laughs> Next. You know. So there are times when a belief is really inappropriate because it, then it blocks you, it impedes you, it constrains your imagination, shuts down whole lines of, of, of inquiry. On the other hand, and this is where I'll stop, William James said, on the other hand, there are some things that become true only if you believe them to be true. Can you achieve shamatha? Can, if I pointed my finger one by one to different individuals here, can you achieve shamatha? Can you? How about you? How about you? And the answer is, well, if you're quite sure you can't, then I agree with you. Because right? if, you're, if you're kind of concerned, oh, I'm not much good at it, blah, 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 blah. No, okay, if that's the box you, box you want to put in, that's not, a, that's not an accomplishing shamatha box. So congratulations, you've just decided you won't achieve shamatha. Right? You see, if you believe you can, well, good. Excellent, the door is open. Now here are the causes, here are the conditions, and if you wish to, go for it. So shamatha, the cultivation, the realization of bodhicitta, the realization of emptiness, realization of rigpa, vidyadhara buddhahood itself, to think that you'll just kind of bump into it by accident while believing you can't, is one of those things I think never happens. Right? Having the door open, the possibility there, and envisioning it. My final, final, now my final point. <laughs> and that is... But this really struck me just when, you know, almost on my walk, walk over here. If we believe something might actually occur, you know, we might realize unconditioned, unconditional love, loving kindness, boundless loving kindness. Maybe, gosh, maybe I have the capacity for that. How could, and I just imagine, maybe, maybe I really could. I was talked about in Christianity, Buddhism, the only, Freud didn't think much of it, but that was his problem. But the great contemplative traditions of the world have spoken about this quite universally. Hinduism, it's there. And I know I don't have it, but maybe I could actually realize immeasurable loving kindness. Now, what's blocking me? Where do I, where do I block that? And then just raising that, but perhaps I could achieve immeasurable loving kindness and then bodhicitta, unconstrained, uncontrived uncontrived, bodhicitta. Raising that there as an aspiration, as a dedication of merit, as a motivation, and then just holding it, and then going into your practice, shamatha, whatever it is, watch what happens. Watch what happens, whether you want to call it from the blessings of the Buddha, or whether you want to call it knowledge just bubbling up from your substrate consciousness, whether you'd like to just say, I don't know where it comes from, but let's see what happens. Watch what happens. When you believe something might be true, something might be possible, 
And then watch what happens when you just go into the quiescence, the openness, the softness of a present awareness, relaxed, stable, and clear. And see what things bubble up. The vision is there, the belief, the confidence is there. But in terms of strategy, in terms of how to do, how to do, see what bubbles up. And you may see realities rising up to meet you from the inside and then from the outside. And that has been my experience. I envisioned this place for years. Not, not as beautiful as this, but I did. I really did. I had no idea. How could I raise that kind of money? I'm not a fundraiser. I'm not a sales guy. I'm, I'm not an advertiser. I'm not a guy who schmoozes with really rich people. I, I never have been. I don't think I will be. There are some people who are really good at it, but I'm not. And I don't even want to be. So how am I going to raise five or ten million dollars? I didn't have any. I didn't have a fraction of that. And then, but I certainly envisioned it. I thought, oh, that would be so good, so good. Doesn't exist anywhere that I know. Oh, so good. And then, reality rose up to meet. And about two years ago, this was just a big. This looked like that little. Lot down there where they cut off all the trees and burned them all. This looked like that. This was just scrub two years ago. And Klaus showed me around. And I was trying to visualize. <laughs> I wasn't very good at it. Well, it's a pretty ordinary flat piece of dirt surrounded by a lot of jungle. Uh, okay, I'll take your word for it. Klaus had the imagination. Here it is. So let's be visionary. I mean, that's really the bottom line. Let's be visionary for ourselves, first of all, from the inside out. Not put ourselves in the prison of the past. Visionary of possibilities for the future, for ourselves, for what we can offer to the world, and just generally, the prayer, the aspiration, the vision that we on this planet, that we can flourish, that we can find the, hap the causes of genuine happiness and cultivate them. So let's envision that, yeah? It's a good aspiration. Good aspiration. Let's practice. Well, not so. Well, lots of mail today. Let's see what's up. Oh, that's an interesting one. Yeah, in the Pali Canon and the Parinibbana Sutta, I believe, I'm pretty sure it's that Sutta. <coughs> And the Buddha's last words, or among the Buddha's last words, just before his parinibbana, was, be as lamps unto yourselves, take no external refuge. That can be read in so many different ways, uh, very meaningful, that is multiple, very meaningful ways. Um, I'm immediately re reminded of advice given to me by Gyatrodhambuchi that I've mentioned at least once or twice already, and that is even if a hundred Buddhas or a thousand Buddhas should appear, you're not going to get any blessing from them. And that as soon as we're looking outside of ourselves for any absolute refuge, to think that the transformation, the liberation, the purification, the awakening of our minds is going to take place fundamentally in reliance upon something outside, we've just slipped into a superstition. In any school, in any school, that is Theravada, that's right, right, right from the Theravada tradition, the Mahayana, what about Buddha nature? Vajrayana, the same, Rikpa, Dzogchen, the same. And so... The historical Buddha, saying this as he's, pat as he's just about to depart, of course is encouraging his unenlightened disciples, those who had not yet achieved liberation, to release their attachment to him. 
because there you can you might try imagining how immensely grief-stricken they would be seeing that the light of the world is just about to go out as far as they can from their perspective and so release he said everything that is born perishes and a buddha Bodhisattva was no exception. And so to encourage them to release their attachment and who then really take the Dharma within and let your mind become Dharma, the Dharma is your ultimate refuge. And the Buddha is a revealer of that refuge and the Sangha are those who help you derive as much benefit as possible from the Dharma. What would you recommend to someone diagnosed with ADHD, Attention Deficit and Hyperactivity Disorder? Uh, that's a medical question, and so I'll, I'm going to walk very carefully here. It's a medical condition. It would be like asking me what, what I recommend for somebody who's clinically diagnosed as having chronic depression or multiple, or multiple personality disorder and so forth. I'm absolutely not a medical doctor or psychiatrist, so I think I have some, some awareness, maybe limited, of my own limitations. Having said that, uh, there's anecdotal evidence, uh, and anecdotal means people's experience. <laughs> It's the, the way the scientists like to put down any, any, any evidence they didn't get. Um, <laughs> bottom line, you know, there's, yeah, there's anecdotal evidence that my mother loves me. You know, but I, I really can't demonstrate it scientifically. The studies haven't been done yet. But what could you do? Um, anecdotal evidence, that is, I've spoken with individuals who... I can give one particular case. I know it's anecdotal. That is an anecdotal. It doesn't prove anything except for it certainly proves some, something for the person to whom it happened. A person I met in Brazil a couple of years back had picked up attention revolution a couple of years earlier than that when I visited Brazil a couple of years prior. He had pretty severe ADHD. He was taking 125 milligrams of Ritalin every day. And apparently that's a massive dose to, to manage the symptoms. And if they're helpful, take them, you know. But then he just reading. I didn't even give a shamatha retreat. He just started reading Attention Revolution and started practicing it. And we wound up in a, at a kind of a dinner gathering in my last visit to Brazil. And he sat next to me and he said, Alan, uh, I've been practicing your shamatha methods. And now I take five milligrams occasionally when I need it. And otherwise, very happy not to be on Ritalin anymore. So it's an anecdote. Well, what does that suggest? This suggests that this would be very, very worthy of scientific study. So there's a, a good friend of mine, a very good scientist, a geneticist primarily, um, at um, UCLA. I think, think she's not so involved there anymore, but she's a geneticist. She studied ADHD from a genetic pr perspective, and she gave the first lecture sponsored by the Santa Barbara Institute. Came up, gave it for free, really very benevolent, generous soul. Um, and she did a study with some colleagues at UCLA to see whether or not Shamatha per se, but mindfulness is taught in the Pasana centers all over the place, whether this could be helpful. And they find it, it was helpful uh, to alleviate the symptoms. Uh, so what I would suggest here is that, to my mind, shamatha is going to be, should be a lot more helpful. Because mindfulness, if it's open to moment-to-moment -moment awareness of whatever comes up, that's not going to be so helpful for Johnny trying to study for an exam. Right? You have, to, you have an exam tomorrow. And Johnny's got his history book in front of him, and, and meanwhile he's back and open to, oh, birch chipping, twinge in my knee. History book, not very interesting. Music playing, ah, video game, you know. There's value in having moment-to-moment -moment awareness of whatever comes up, but not for education much, and that's not necessarily going to be really good for attention hyperactivity disorder, where the mind's going every, everywhere anyway. 
So mindfulness, I, I suspect, can be somewhat helpful, but shamatha is exactly attentional training. So what, what would I suggest is consult with your psychiatrist. If you're taking medication, then first of all, consult with your psychiatrist. See if your psychiatrist would be amenable to your venturing into something like some type of shamatha practice, like mindfulness of breathing. And then see, with the psychiatrist and a qualified meditation teacher, whether you can gradually, with a full monitoring by your psychiatrist, who prescribed the medication for you, uh, gradually wean yourself off of the medication without detriment. Overall, that would be good for everybody except for the pharmaceutical company that sold you the drug. And they would be very happy to have you be on it for life, because that's what they're in the business of doing, is making money. And so I think there's great potential here for scientific research, but it should be done very soberly and with no demonizing of anybody. I do not demonize the people who make Ritalin because that, that has really been very, very helpful to many people. On the other hand, can it be pushed too far where people are just say that's the final answer, manage the symptom forever? I think that's a pretty limited imagination. So hopefully there will be a lot more research and a lot of really close consultation between savvy psychiatrists who have some appreciation of the benefits of meditation and meditation teachers who acknowledge or are aware of that uh, these kind of psychotropic drugs can be very helpful for managing symptoms. They are very rarely helpful for really curing the disease from the, from the foundation, from the root. But if we can alleviate symptoms, that's a good thing. So uh, hopefully there will be a lot more there in that regard. It's a very fruitful area and there are millions of people in the United States alone, I think it's something like 5 million, if I remember correctly, that have been clinically diagnosed with ADHD. Of course, Ritalin is also taken as a recreational drug. And so a lot of problems around it, but hopefully we can bring a lot of good sense to this and there could be benefit by the cl close and mutually respectful collaboration between the psychiatric profession and qualified meditation instructors. That's what I would hope. Okay, there's a story, a story question. Um, it's a long one. Any short ones? No. Any short ones? No. <laughs> Ah, um, yeah, Jenny, I, I thought Emilios was there. If not, I can probably get it um, in the photos that I gave you, because I, 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 I tried to put it in. The one that's not in there is this rascal over here. Yeah, Odette. I tried to pull her photo off, and who's my witness? Glenn and John are my witness. I, everybody else I could pull off. She has enormous attachment. Attachment, very strong attachment, I'm sorry to say. I mean, you're a very nice person. <laughs> of course, I'm joking. But your photo just would not leave the Word file. It would slide across the Word file. I, I made it really big, and it would, then it would slide. And then I'd let it go back, and I would, I would drop it, and I, tried, I just couldn't get you out of that Word file. So I think you just decided that was where you wanted to stay forever, in the Word file on my computer. <laughs> Milio got off, but maybe he just slipped away. And he's a rascal, too. He's a rascal. And Milio's definitely a rascal. She's definitely a rascal. Ah. From the beginning? Okay, good, then we're problem solved. Yeah, because I really could not. I thought I could collapse the whole word file so, word file so it would be just her picture. I could do that, but this is going to be easier. Yeah. <laughs> and I have no idea why that happened. Very, quite an anomaly. Go ahead, Yunam. What's that? I Jenny. You helped Jenny? And, uh, there was a user's profile, but people were not open 
Oh, I, I noticed that one was really small. Yeah, that was his. I yeah, it was only 1.5 megabytes. And I wondered, why were you so small? Everybody else was fully fleshed with 5 megabytes. So, um, so we, yeah, so that's, that's easy. Because you, you would slide off. She's the only one that wouldn't slide off. <laughs> What's that? I understand. It just needs to be. It just needs to be put onto. Uh, needs to be slid off again. Computers, unlike human beings, are really fallible. That is Buddha nature. Okay. How can we get one of these rainbow? How can we get? How can we get one of those great rainbow bodies? Uh, <laughs> is it Walmart? Is it you know Target? You know how can we get one? And do they have sale days? Because I really would like to buy it. And and, and then are they tax deductible? So how can we get one of these great rainbow body achieved to not die but stay teaching for about 1,000 years? Seriously, wouldn't that be really beneficial in maturing people? Yeah, <laughs> it would. Yeah, it would be very good. And so um, <laughs> let's get it. Let's get it. There are two, two tracks. I mean, really, if I could live as long as I would like to in this lifetime, it would be long enough to establish at least two contemplative observatories. One on a Dzogchen track, so people would achieve shamatha and bodhicitta, and then go straight on Dujum Lingba, a track of Vipassana, Tekchut, and Tutgel, and that's rainbow body at the end. And the other one is Kala Chakra, and that's shamatha, bodhicitta, stage regeneration completion. And it culminates in the, in the, um, the body of empty form. And it's, it's the same, your material, and, but this is described in detail exactly how it happens. Kala Chakra unpacks it totally, in detail. It's, it's got physics, it's got biology, it's got cosmology, it's got microcosm, macrocosm, it's an incredible system. Dzogchen I love for it, just simplicity, bam, here's the practice, go for it. Kala Chakra just opens it up into this vast, incredible, incredible worldview, with the mandala and so forth and so on. But they come to the same point, and so to have one track going more developmental, you know, really developing the bodhicitta, and then, of course, the vipassana, but then stage of generation, stage of completion, step by step. And then the other one, just straight discovery, you know, that'd be terrific. And let the two be kind of like, you know, interrelated. So, that'd be good. But that's where that comes from. And while the Dharma is still alive, I think we should do it, you know, while the Dharma is alive and we're alive. That'd be probably the best time. And there's still lamas. I mean, I, as I mentioned earlier, I do have a very nice connection with the one monastery that I know of outside of Tibet where Kala Chakra is their primary practice. It's one monastery. And just by the way, they're in financial straits. So I'm, I'm just saying this. But they're really in financial straits. They're the one Jonang monastery. The Jonang tradition is a sub-tradition of the Kagyuba tradition out of the four major schools. And the Jonamba is one that is really preserved Kala Chakra both in theory and in practice. And they have quite a number of unique elements of, of Kala Chakra practice that nobody else has. Um, and in, in a one-on-one -on -one conversation with Kaka Jesen Dambarambuche, who's the head of that whole order, and also the head lama of Mongolia, and also regarded as an incarnation of Tadanata, who founded that order, or at least was instrumental in it, uh, he said the stage of completion practices of Kala Chakra as preserved in the Jonamba, he said they're without parallel. Stage of generation, he said the Galupa is very, very good. And so is Jonamba also. But stage of completion, he said, Jonamba is really outstanding. And when he told me this, I really had a sense he was just viewing it objectively. Because he's been training Galupa, he's been training Jonang. 
Uh, so it's a monastery with about 120 monks up in Shimla, in northern India. And so I'm just saying this to anybody who's listening, um, that it's a good monastery, and all of the monks, 120 monks, all of them have or will participate in a three-year Kalachaka retreat. That's pretty formidable. That includes a 49-day dark retreat, where they're in pitch black for 49 days straight. You thought it was interesting being here for eight weeks with air conditioning, three yummy meals a day. Oh, oh this is difficult. <laughs> Try 49 days in pitch black, see how that suits you. You either go crazy or come out a better person. One of the, one of the two, one of the two. And so these monks, and they're main, main, they have a whole tradition. They have a Vajra Acharya there, who's the, the, um, the Doji Lopa, the meditation master. He's very competent. They have two Kempos there, who writ Kempos means real scholars, you know, like Geshe's. And I have a very nice connection with them. And they really want to help, and they're ready to send teachers here anytime. Because Klaus has helped them out, I've helped them out financially. Uh, so it's, uh, well, I think I'll keep the rest private. But th these two are two straight, two straight, two true statements. So shorter teachings could be given here. But they really need help there. They got 100 monks, 120 monks in a monastery that was built about 50 years ago, and it's just falling apart. It's just falling apart. The rain is coming through, and it's, it's up at about 6,000 feet, so it's cold in the winter. And um, you know how much it costs for them to build a brand new monastery for 120 monks? A quarter of a million. That would do it. They had a brand new monastery they could live in, a quarter of a million dollars. So. They're very worthy, and they're the only monastery outside of Tibet who's maintaining that lineage. So I hope they receive it. I'm saying this now, just who knows? Sometimes manna falls from heaven. But um, yeah, so those two paths, those two paths. I mean, of course, there are many other. There's nothing exclusive about what I said. Madhuri, Gini, Gwaisamaja, and so forth and so on. But here are two very explicitly, the Dzogchen and the Kala Chakra, very explicitly. They lead to rainbow body, and there you go. So... Here's one, so I've not read any of these, but um, here we go. What do you recommend for someone who has a very stressful job, but at the same time, a lot of engage with many people in the, in the company, a lot, at the same time, a lot of engagement, presumably, with many people in the company. When you said the last two months, let your mind become dharma, how can I practice every day this in a difficult environment? I think the four measurables is a good, great tool, but most of all, how can I generate the aspiration to be a benefit to others without being discouraged? Yeah. Good. Very, very practical. So let's just review briefly, because there are more questions here. Um, what, again, what exactly does it mean to give up attachment to this life? There's so many obviously ridiculous ways of interpreting that, like give up all will to live. I don't care whether I live anymore. You know, okay, that's one. There's one dumb one. Any more dumb ones? Uh, but this was Daim Dom Dumba. He was a great and profound soul. So there's nothing foolish about what he said. And of course what it means is something very simple. It's giving up attachment to mundane concerns. It's giving up attachment to things that have value only in this lifetime and are completely irrelevant beyond. Now that sounds like it's absolutely couched in, in, the, in the view of reincarnation or rebirth. And one can certainly view it that way. But not necessarily. Obviously that's my view. And from the view of rebirth, there's just no question about it. How much money I have, how many vacations, how many, th how many pleasures I enjoy, and so forth and so on. All the hedonic pleasures, rack them up. Just, you know, machine gun me with, with, with hedonic pleasures 24 hours a day for 90 years. 
So I'm just, I'm just being spattered my hedonic pleasures. And it, uh, 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 you know, like for 90 years, imagine I just get whacked with just one hedonic pleasure, like one 90-year orgasm. You know, <laughs> at the end, what do you got? In, in terms of future life, I mean, some really bizarre memories. <laughs> I think that's about it. You know, like that was weird. <laughs> you know, and nothing more. I mean, it's just zero significance, zero benefit, zero transformation, nothing, zero. You may may as well not have been alive. If that's all you got was a whole bunch of hedonic pleasures, then why even breathe? I mean, really, what's the point? It meant nothing, zero, zip. Right? Now, on top of that, if we do unwholesome things, then it's less than zip. Right? Whereas, let alone, setting aside for the moment, belief in karma, reincarnation, if we, live, if we live ethical lives, benevolent lives, we do our best to offer our best to the world, and then we die. Well, the consequences of our actions do continue. It's true, isn't it? I mean, that's not a belief. That's not some wild metaphysical speculation. People who who initiate good things in this world. They continue on for years afterward. Just remembering who Gandhi was. Barack Obama went is in, in India, or just was in India, and he was evoking Mahatma Gandhi and his legacy to the Indian people. And it's very easy to forget, because India is becoming rather materialistic, and the ideals that he stood for are easily kind of forgotten, frankly. The same old, same old, you know. Um, but people who bring good things to this world, often the goodness of that keeps on flowing, the repercussions flow even after they die. And that's a good thing. Now, if there's, if there's rebirth and karma, well, then it's also a good thing for you. And if death means annihilation, well, there's no good for you, but at least you've brought something good to the world. So giving up attachment to this life means giving up attachment to mundane concerns that have no significance beyond this life. And that is how much pleasure you've had in this life after you're dead, frankly, nobody cares. Really? Who cares? I mean, how many... T have you ever watched somebody else's slideshow of the vacation they've been on? <laughs> I mean, if they're your loved ones, then you, you can ent enter a little bit of mudita. You know, I'm, I'm glad you had a nice vacation. It's over, isn't it? <laughs> you know? But besides loved ones who will enter into mudita, who cares? Who really cares? And so whatever we got for ourselves, nobody cares. And so giving up attachment to that. And so they're in the workplace, engaging with people in business and so forth and so on. Whenever you see anxiety arising, whenever you see hope and fear arising, be like Sherlock Holmes, be an investigator, and see, is this coming from loving kindness? Is this coming from renunciation? Is this coming from bodhicitta, the four immeasurables? Where is this anxiety, this hope and fear that's setting me ill at ease, setting me nervous, getting me stressed out? Because stress doesn't come from outside. Stress comes from inside, from mental afflictions. No mental afflictions, there's just no stress. Our hearts never get stressed out. Buddhas forget about it. <laughs> right? And so whenever we find ourselves getting stressed out, caught up in anxiety, hope and fear, and so forth, trace it. Just be smart. Trace it. And just see for yourself, is there not some attachment to this life? Some clinging to acquisition, fear of loss of acquisition, clinging to pleasurable, pleasurable experiences, fear that we'll have unpleasurable experiences, 
clinging to other people praising us, fear that they'll disparage or ridicule us, clinging to a good reputation, acknowledgement, acceptance, and love of others, fearing they'll do the opposite. Or if we just simplify that to the three, the three jewels of, the, of modernity, Buddhists take three, refuge in the three jewels, right? Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. Modernity, materialistic, secular modernity also takes refuge in three jewels. That's my hypothesis. And the three jewels are wealth, power, and status. I think it pretty well sums it up. Because all the material stuff you can buy, status brings you praise, acknowledgement, all that kind of stuff, and then they're just sheer power. It's an interesting that that doesn't get highlighted so much in the Buddhist tradition. But man, some people are absolutely addicted to it. Just addicted to it, you know. Um, yeah. I will make a political statement. Uh, when I saw it, the Republicans just took the House, the Democrats kept the Senate in the United States, and the head of the Republican Party said, our top priority now is to make sure that Obama is a one-term president. To my mind, I, 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 I cannot see from any perspective how that is a patriotic statement, how that expresses a love for country. I just can't, unless they think he's a demon, that he's like evil incarnate, which takes quite a stretch of imagination. Uh, I would love for the Republicans to say, we agree with many of his policies, but for the next four years, we are going to work with the administration to bring as much benefit to this country as possible in our international relationships and solve the problems. And the president is integral to any being get, getting anything really constructive done. And we hope that our person, our candidate in four years, or whatever it is, six years, will, no, it's two years, two years, will be, but in the meantime, for the next two years, we want to do the best for our country as a ha as, that we possibly can. And we hope we'll take both the House and the Senate and the presidency in two years. That I understand. I would respect that. But to say our top priority is to get the president out, that means we're going to screw him in every, 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 every stop. We're not going to cooperate with him. We're going to try to bring him embarrassment, shame, and total failure. I, I'm sorry, I don't see that as being patriotic or benevolent or compassionate at all. And if a Democrat said, th said that, I would say the same thing. So that's power. That's lust, raw lust, self-centered power, for craving, clinging, attachment to power. And I think it's disgusting. Sorry, that's my political statement. And if a Democrat said it, I'd say the same thing. If we had George Bush, well, I think I'll not elaborate on that. <laughs> <laughs> Enough said. <laughs> okay, you asked me to send you... Uh, um, Susan, shall I read it aloud or just read it private? I can read it myself. I will do so. Okay. Is it necessary... Okay, here's a technical question. Is it necessary to achieve shamatha in order to gain stream entry? There are certainly... First of all, I, before saying my own view or the view that I've adopted, I want to say this is a point that is debated by very knowledgeable people. Okay? If, a, if an ignorant person debates with a knowledgeable person, who cares? But Bhikkhu Bodhi is a very knowledgeable scholar. He's one uh, among living scholars of Theravada Buddhism, at least among Westerners. He's really, very, really, really, really good. And if I recall correctly, I know he's written a paper on this, and if I recall correctly, he, based upon his scholarship, has come to the conclusion that it's not necessary to achieve full, uh, a f the first jhana, the first jhana, which is right next door to achieving shamatha, shamatha being just be before that, He's come to the conclusion it's not necessary to achieve the first jhana in order to become stream enterer, but it is necessary to achieve 
I think the higher stages, once we return and non-return, that's his conclusion, right? Our people, I think, are misinformed. They're, they're good scholars, but I think they're misinformed to think that first jhana or even access to the first jhana isn't necessary at all. Uh, there's no indication of that in the Buddhist teachings. He never said that. And what they're saying is that momentary samadhi is sufficient. Uh, rather than my giving the whole refutation of that, I would simply turn people who are interested to the shamata.org, uh, S-H-A-M-A-T-H-A.org, a website where there are two texts by Kaminda Tera. Uh, he's a very, very, he's passed away, but a very good scholar. And he th- gives, uh, to my mind, a very compelling argument based upon very scrupulous study of the Pali Canon, great commentaries, how, in his view, um, you need to achieve the first jhana in order to become stream emperor, let alone anything beyond that. That's his view. Um, I did not find compelling his refutation of access to the first jhana being sufficient. He says it's not sufficient. You have to have full jhana to achieve stream entry. I didn't find that compelling, although I'm sure he did, and I'm sure other people do as well. I can say for the Indo-Tibetan tradition, going back to the classics of the Mahayana tradition, that there's a, quite a broad consensus that, um, that access to the first jhana, shamatha, is necessary. Because to an, in order to achieve stream entry, to become an Arya, this is achieved only by the fusion, the unification of shamatha and vipassana. That's it. And shamatha, well, what level of shamatha? Well, you don't need the fourth jhana. That's quite clear. The Buddha said, and I've cited this in the Attention Revolution and I think elsewhere, that just before he achieved enlightenment, he recalled having spontaneously slipped into the first jhana when he was a youth. There, after having just gone through six years of austerities, many years later, the thought occurred to him, might that be the way to liberation? That is, the first jhana. The recognition arose, yes it is, and then very rapidly he achieved enlightenment. So he indicates the first jhana is necessary for achieving liberation. And that's straight from his own teachings. But the Buddha himself in the Pali Canon made no distinction between access to the first jhana and the, the actual state, the full jhana. He, there's no, rep, there's no distinction, distinction drawn there. He didn't do it. That comes in the Theravada tradition, but it also comes in the Sanskrit-based tradition of sutras that, that flowed into Tibet. And there's a lot of agreement between the two. So the conclusion I've drawn based upon my studies of the Pali Canon, which are not professional, since I, I, you know, I read a lot, I know a lot of Pali words, but I don't read Pali. But my Tibetan is pretty good, and I've read a lot of t- t- translations from Sanskrit, and, and you know, I studied Sanskrit for three years. Um, I'm, I haven't seen any reason to, to challenge Sonkaba. And he is, one could say, immeasurably a greater scholar than I am. Um, but his conclusion was access to the first jhana is necessary. And then you fuse that, shamatha, with your insight into emptiness, into nirvana, a unification of shamatha vipassana on emptiness, on nirvana, and that makes you a stream enterer. Right? So I just haven't, I've never found any evidence that was compelling to refute him. Right? If some opens up, I'll, I'll look at it. You know? But he was so brilliant and his erudition was so vast that um, I'm quite content to take that as a working hypothesis. Is there an equivalence to stream entry in the Mahayana path? Um, I've heard from Matthew Ricard and, and Luis Gomez that in the Bodhisattva vehicle, irreversibility is achieved only on the eighth Bumi. Is that correct? That's not correct. And I'm sure Matthew didn't say that. And I doubt that Gomez said it either. He's also a very good scholar. Um, 
That has to be a misinterpretation. Um, here's what it said. And I can say this with a lot of confidence, not that I know it from experience, but in the Mahayana uh, tradition, and I'm, this is straight back to the Abhisamayalankara, the great commentaries to it, and affiliated literature, it is stated that when you achieve the eighth Aryabhutta, this is very technical, very, very advanced Buddhism, very far after having achieved shamatha, uh, that, first of all, an arhat is one who has completely irreversibly purified all mental afflictions with all the ramifications of that. Okay? You'll never be thrown by karmic clay into a future life. You're finished. Um, on the Mahayana path, you achieve that level of purity that all of your mental afflictions, klesha, the klesha avarana, are completely and irreversibly purified eighth jhana, at the eighth Arya Bodhisattva Bhumi. So in terms of purification, you're the same as an arhat. In terms of punya, in terms of merit, in terms of your motivation, bodhicitta and all of that, there's no comparison. There's just no comparison between an eighth level, eighth stage Arya Bodhisattva and an arhat. It's like a galaxy and a, and a, and a planet. Okay? That's why it takes so, so, so long. Um, but, you're, but it's irreversible long before then. If, let's go way back to the first Bhumi. You've just achieved the Mahayana path of seeing. Well, you'll never be off. You'll never slip back. You've become an Arya. You've become an Arya Bodhisattva. You'll never, ever be anything less than Arya Bodhisattva. It's impossible. But let's keep on going. Let's keep on going down the ladder. How about Mahayana path of accumulation? Well, if you've achieved the second stage, medium stage of Mahayana path of accumulation, then your bodhicitta is irreversible. You'll never be a non-bodhisattva. You'll never be separated from bodhicitta. So you first become a bodhisattva when you enter the small stage, the initial stage of the Mahayana path of accumulation. And what that means is your bodhicitta has become spontaneous. Uh, it is effortless, it's authentic, and you are a bodhisattva, right? And it's called the earth-like bodhicitta. But then it could conceivably, if you met some really awful circumstances, you could conceivably lose it and then renounce your bodhicitta and then follow just a path of individual liberation. It could happen. But if you've gone beyond the initial stage to the second stage, the medium stage of the Mahayana path of accumulation, where your bodhicitta now has, on the one hand, it's deepened to gold-like bodhicitta, and it's deepened in part because it's now been sealed, it's been complemented by insight, Vipassana-style insight, namely the four satipatthana, four applications of mindfulness. If you've sealed, reinforced, strengthened your bodhicitta, and of course deepened your bodhicitta itself, to that point of the second stage, your, your bodhicitta is gold-like, which means it will, as you, in, in classical India, there's nothing you can do to gold that will make, make it become not gold. Okay? Maybe if you drop an atom bomb on it, I think it would become non-gold, but they didn't have atom bombs back then. And so what that means is your bodhicitta is irreversible. That means you're going to be a bodhisattva from then on. Okay? So, so the stream entry, in terms of entering the path and never being off the path, is Mahayana path, the medium stage of Mahayana path of accumulation. In order, now, many, but not all, scholars in Tibet, and then tracing back to India, uh, assert that in order for bodhicitta to be so deeply cultivated that it is simply spontaneously what arises, it is uncontrived, effortless, then many believe that you must, that that can only arise if your mind is already balanced with shamatha. Achieve shamatha, develop, and then you can, you can actually develop uncontrived, 
effortless bodhicitta, authentic bodhicitta. And then you can seal it with vipassana. Okay? Now those who disagree with that, they disagree on a technical point. They're not saying, well, if you don't have any shana, there's no problem, just develop bodhicitta, that's enough. I don't think any of them say that. And it's kind of obvious. This is not a doctrine or just a belief statement, but if your mind is just crap, just oscillating being with excitation or laxity, how do you expect anything good to arise out of that that will be really durable? You know, Because you're going to be caught up. This means excitation is coming up all the time. The very nature of excitation is self-centered attachment. Right? It's really about me. So how is Bodhicitta going to flourish in that? So even those who say, no, you don't need fully bodhicitta, they say, but yeah, but you, you should be well along the, short, but the, the, the shamatha path. Right. So I would just, I'd rather be safe than sorry. So why not just achieve shamatha? Then, then the debate's finished. Then you don't have to worry about the debate. Because nobody says if you achieve shamatha, that will impede your bodhicitta. Especially if your motivation for practicing and achieving shamatha was to develop bodhicitta, make it irreversible so that you can progress smoothly and irreversibly on the path to enlightenment. So, when I envision two large paths, doing whatever is necessary to achieve shamatha, and that may be a wide variety of preliminary practices, who knows what, but do whatever is necessary to create the outer and inner conditions to be able to achieve shamatha with a motivation, a Mahayana motivation. Achieve, achieve shamatha, go directly to achieve bodhicitta authentically. Seal it, and then from that point, with shamatha and vipassana and, and shamatha and bodhicitta, actually having become a bodhisattva, then to my mind, that's when the, the when the road forks. I mean, the f- road forks in multiple ways. You could just follow the Mahayana path and follow the six perfections and so forth. Nothing wrong with that. Just practice bodhicharvatara for the rest of your life, and maybe multiple lifetimes. Nothing wrong with that. But in terms of a fast track, fast track, then once you have achieved shamatha and genuine bodhicitta realize that. Then there are just two paths that just call out. And that is, one, it would be the state regeneration completion, but for that to be effective, you just have to practice Vipassana first. I mean, that's what Tsongkhapa teaches and pretty much everybody else. You, the state regenerate doesn't make any sense if you're still reifying everything. It, it's silly. And so that would suggest shamatha, bodhicitta, and then Vipassana, and then state of regeneration, state of completion. The alternate complementary path Shamatha, bodhicitta, vipassana, and then breakthrough and direct crossing over. Okay. How does medicine Buddha practice work? You have said that once karma has ripened, there is nothing to do, and the sadhana is generally done by people who are, are already sick. Ah, uh, well, if you're waiting until you get sick before practicing medicine Buddha, I think you waited a bit too long. When I was living with Takayishi Dundan, uh, of course, one of his major practices, like I think from most practicing traditional Tibetan doctors, uh, medicine Buddhas, that's almost like their yidam. They're, it's their professional yidam. Their personal deity is meditation Buddha, right? or med- medicine Buddha. Um, and so it's not something just to practice to mop up, <laughs> mop up the problem when it's already arisen. Uh, I mean, Yeshi Dundan commented, and it's it's classic. I mean, you can actually take the, the medicine Buddha as your yidam, and that can be your path on stage regeneration. And I don't, know, I don't know whether it actually is there. I just simply do not know whether it's up there in the highest yoga tantra, but it's certainly there in Kriya tantra. So that could be your path to achieving light, enlightenment, medicine Buddha. Um, but to answer your real question, 
imagine you have gotten sick and then you practice medicine Buddha. Um, well, the fact that you've gotten sick means the karma, if it is indeed karma that is ripening, that g gave rise to your illness, um, certainly the karma is maturing. But let's not make no mistake about this. If you get sick, if you get sick, is this necessarily a maturation of karma? I don't, and not, not, unless, not unless by karma you simply generally mean action or something that happened. Imagine that, you know, on Wednesday night, our last night here, they serve ice cream, and I think this is my last chance, and I skip everything besides ice cream, and I, I just take a bin. <laughs> I, just, I just run, and I just, when well, nobody's looking, because I'm the meditation teacher, it's embarrassing, but nobody's looking, I just snatch the bin, run off my room, and then just chow down until the bin is empty. And the next morning, oddly enough, I feel really awful. Past life karma, right? <laughs> I don't think so. It's, you ate too much ice cream, stupid. <laughs> you know, there's no karma involved there. You did something stupid and you got sick. You know, so all illness is not necessarily some past life influence. I wouldn't even say karma, except for that was an action eating, eating, the, uh, eating the ice cream. But if there's karma of that, it would be being selfish, acting out of greed, and then the karmic repercussions of that might ma manifest in some future life. That's possible, right? Because I took way more than my share of the ice cream. Okay, that would be some unwholesome action that would give rise to karma. But getting sick as I ate too much ice cream, that's not karma, that's just being stupid, right? So illness comes from all kinds of conditions, and it's not always past life karma. And then, even if it is past life karma, and this is a, actually a very important point, I mean, you can imagine. I mean, it's so easy to slip into a fatalist interpretation of karma when it comes to illness. Imagine a doctor. <laughs> I mean, really, it comes pretty quickly, doesn't it? Okay, imagine I'm, I'm running a clinic, and Carlos comes in and said, uh, Doctor, I've got some real stomach problems, and I didn't eat anything bad or anything, but it's, it's, oh, it's your karma. What can I do? It's your karma ripening. Next, Carissa. Uh, doctor, I'm, I've got some real problems. Yeah. Oh, that's your karma too. Next. Uh, th that'd be $50, please, and that's $50 from you too. That's, that's your karma. And that's your karma. Yeah. Even if an illness comes from karma, we don't know what that karma was. We don't know the complexities of it. Sometimes there may be karma that gives you the beginning of an illness, and then there's other karma that if you meet with the right circumstances, you get over the illness. Right? So Dr. Yeshe Dundan told me that part of being a really accomplished doctor is recognizing which type of illnesses are stemming from karma and the karmic influence is so powerful there's simply nothing the doctor can do and that can be diagnosed. So I, I translated for him for years and it must have been hundreds of patients for whom I translated for him. Um, if it ever occurred, it was very rare that he would say, uh, can't, treat, can't, can't help you. It's karma. It could happen. It could happen. I didn't translate for his Tibetan patients. They didn't need me. It's Tibetan, Tibetan. Right. But there are cases where there's a mortal disease and a doctor who's really good can recognize, as Western physicians, without references to karma, there's nothing we can do for you. And so then the Tibetan doctor were looking at this 
then if he's, especially if he's, he's the, the patient is a Buddhist, you might just tell him flat out, you know, there's nothing I can do at all. It's time for you to really wrap up your affairs, make your prayers, ded dedication, cultivate virtuous mind, pack your bags, you're going to go soon. You know, but not delude them into thinking, you know, oh, just take this pill and everything will be fine, when you know perfectly well that's not going to happen. So karma is extremely un unimaginably complex, but the fact that a person is ill isn't necessarily from karma. And the fact that if, even if the illness is from karma, there's no guarantee that the karma then is such that the illness can't be cured. Right? And this is why there is such a thing as medicine. Okay? So that's actually a very important point. It's, it's a subtle and it's a, it's a narrow middle way there to understand karma that from a Buddhist perspective, of course, that there are past life influences. But at no point, I don't think there's any point at all in which someone comes with adversity, and a person from, Dar from the speaking, representing the Buddha Dharma would say, I'm sorry, but this is just karma, there's nothing at all you can do about it. And leave it at that. There are illnesses. When my friend died of bone cancer, there really didn't seem to be any hope at all, not from Tibetan medicine, not from any sort. It was advanced metastatic bone cancer. They're just that, that apart from just divine intervention, you know, but there just wasn't any way. But I was his friend. He had other happily other friends as well. No, we can't reverse the bone cancer, but we can help you in your Dharma practice. And thanks to the, the medication, what, what's the drug? It starts with an M. Morphine. Thanks to the morphine drip. Palms pressed. Palms pressed with respect and gratitude. The morphine drip could keep the pain down, and, but he would modulate it so he would not become you know, just totally blotto, mentally blotto, he could maintain some clarity without agonizing pain, and he could practice Dharma pretty much to the end. Okay? So there was something he could do, not that he or the doctors, let alone some shlemiel like myself, could do to turn back the illness. But we could help him, and that's it is, take no external refuge, start where we end where we began, help him transform this way of ending his life. And he, he ended it quite well. He really, I mean, Physically, absolutely catastrophic. But because of the morphine, very good care medically, as good as could be offered, good Dharma friends. He was practicing pretty much right up to the end. Okay, now what more can we ask for? We're all going to die. So if we can die practicing Dharma, well, then, we're, then that's a triumph. That's a triumph. Okay? So, dealing in karma, let's always tread gently gently, because it's so easy to misunderstand. It's easy to refute it altogether. That's a cinch. It's easy to fall into fatalism. That's a cinch. But to see the subtlety of it, and to see also that from moment to moment, we are sowing the seeds of fresh karma. So the fresh karma, whether it's the patient, it's the doctor, it's the loved ones, we're always creating our fresh, our future anew from the present moment. That's really crucial.